Yo, what's going down, everybody? So this is a little preamble before we start the show, just to let you know that this episode we're going to be talking about the feature film that myself and Isaiah Medina recently put out. Isaiah is the director. He's the avant-garde sort of extraordinaire of the film uh, 8888 that won a bunch of end-of-the-year awards back in 2015 when it first came out, and he thankfully uh, was able to come on board and direct the film that I produced called Inventing the Future that is the adaptation of the best-selling book Inventing the Future, Post-Capitalism and a World Without Work. You guys can stream the film on YouTube. If you just go to YouTube and search for Inventing the Future, it will come up. Uh, you can go to the website, inventfuturedoc, that's D-O-C, .com, and you can check it out. Or you could probably just Google it and you can find it out. Um, you could also go to Quantity Cinema and you can actually get a hold of the file since Isaiah was doing something kind of crazy and decided to just release the whole file to everybody. And of course, I've also put a link in the show notes, so you can just look down there and you can click the link that way as well. But this episode, Troy and I decided to kind of delve into this film, why I decided to adapt this film, how the film came to be, yada, yada, yada. But I wanted to let you guys know at the outset how you can find the film in case you want to watch it now before we get into it. Or if you just want to take note of how you can track it down so that after you listen to the episode or in the middle or something like that, if you get so inspired, you can go ahead and find it quite easily. So Inventing the Future, go to YouTube, Google it, Invent Future Doc or Quantity Cinema. You can download the actual file there or you can just find my Twitter page and it's my pinned tweet. Okay, so you can find it that way. Hope you guys enjoy the show. Later. And when you engage in the act of representation, you're actually imposing the written word onto the cinematic form, rather than trying to do something where the form of cinema itself speaks. What's up? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. And I'm Troy Polidori. And this week we have an interview with the producer of... Inv- oh wait, that's me. I'm the producer of Inventing the Future. <laughs> Talking We're to the third person me. descriptive. That's a new thing. <laughs> that's right. Austin, when Austin is talking, this is what Austin likes to do. So, Yeah. Uh, we're going to be chatting about a film that I produced that have, I've been working on for the last about four years, almost. We can talk probably a little bit about that, how it all came about. But Troy just watched it the other day, to, um, and he wrote down a bunch of questions, and he's obviously read the book as well. And so he's familiar with the work of the authors of the book that the film is based on. And we actually did an episode a few months ago with Brett from Rev Left Radio talking about Another written, published piece by these same authors who inspired this film um, that was uh, about the, uh, it's called the uh, Accelerationist Manifesto. So if you're interested in that, you can check that out as well. We kind of worked through that. But yeah, so we're going to talk about inventing the future and we'll work through some of the ideas in that. And And we should also add, dude, that episode 35 of Owls at Dawn way back in the day was with Isaiah Medina, the director of the film. So you can go back and uh, oh, that's get a right. taste of that if you want some chronological dealings with this film. Damn. Was that 2017? It was a long-ass time ago. <laughs> no, it must have been 2000. God, it may have been. I was in Ireland. I remember that. So crazy, man. All right, Damn. cool. So yeah, we'll jump into that in the main segment. If you want to support us in uh, 
more tangible ways, though, we would absolutely love if you'd go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. You can get access there to goodies like the monthly newsletter we send out with extra sticky leaves and extra shitty minutes, as well as access to bonus content like bonus episodes that we release intermittently throughout the uh, our tenure and uh, other goodies. So go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn to get access to those. Sweet. Yeah, yeah. We got any other things to do before we jump into this shit, dude? I don't think so, man. I say we just run it. All right. We know we got to do before we start talking about our main topic is get that shitty minute juices flowing, right? (laughs) Yeah. So if you're not familiar, the shitty minute is the segment of the show where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears lately. So Austin, what's got you down? Well, Bernie just formally announced that he is suspending his campaign. And... Twitter, I think, I mean, a lot of people anticipated this, especially in the 24 hours preceding the official announcement, but the official announcement came down, I guess it's today, my time, yesterday, your time, and um, and so, you know, social media blew up, and then, of course, mainstream media, they blew up in their own ways, and I even got messages from family members kind of either just checking up on me or trying to, you know, inform me and let me know because they knew that I was a Bernie stan. So, but yeah, Bernie, Bernie has suspended his campaign and there's a lot of takes ranging from like the, oh, he's just suspending his campaign because he's concerned about exposing people to COVID-19, but he's still on the ballot in all the states, so we should vote for him. Um, He's not actually... Uh, like ending his campaign he's just suspending the events all the way to like the good fuck him he's finally gone now we can support biden so one is like denial and one is just some bad faith trolls that have always been against (laughs) bernie from the beginning right and then everything in between there and um, a lot of people expressing gratitude for his legacy and for things that he has placed into the public discourse and not just the public discourse, but actually shifting the Democratic Party platform in uh, quite measurable ways. Uh, you know, we're talking about free college, canceling student debt, minimum wage raise, uh, talking about expanding the public health care uh, in the United States to whatever capacity it ends up happening. You know, none of those things could even have been talked about when Bush was president, for example. And, um, I mean, and then Obama kind of maybe took baby steps in some direction, uh, in some directions, but <clears throat> definitely the, the impact that Bernie has had on the, on the kind of public consciousness, let's say, and then also on the platform of the Democratic Party is, um, is quite, is quite, um, drastic in a lot of ways. So, uh, you know, a lot of people expressing gratitude for that. A lot of people expressing sorrow, a lot of people bummed out, despair, and then, you know, so. It's just kind of shitty, though, from my perspective, because I genuinely, I'd say before the Super Tuesday shift when you had all of the candidates, the Klobuchars and the Peets and everybody else consolidate behind Biden, prior to that move, I thought we were looking pretty good, you know. Um, Sanders was leading in the majority of the states and definitely in a lot of the key states, and it looked like he was going to come out of Super Tuesday with a large um, uh, a large lead, or at least a apparent lead, like a very apparent 
lead. I don't mean apparent in the sense like it appears as though, but that it is, uh, it is there. <laughs> the plurality, not visible. majority thing everyone was talking about. Exactly. Yeah, visible. Um, and uh, and and it was and, and it was a visible reality. And you started to even see the shift in the mainstream media. People even like fucking Joe. Um, what is it, Scarsborough or whatever his name is from Morning Joe? Even he was saying, like, guys, this is it. This is happening. And they were kind of predicting that that was going to be the case. And then, of course, you had the consolidation behind Biden and uh, everything changed, right? I mean, maybe South Carolina was, was the was the event. But regardless, maybe it was Obama behind the scenes. We don't know. But regardless, um, the uh, the tide definitely turned. And so, and I, I really believed. I even said on this podcast, I said, I do think that he's going to be the next president. I, I thought it was going to happen. I really did. And um, and then even over the past couple of weeks, let's say the past month or so since Super Tuesday, when it didn't look like it was going to happen, I still, maybe it's because of all the sports films I've watched and all the Disney films that I watched, <laughs> I, th- I thought that a comeback was the still comeback possible. Kid, yeah. yeah, I thought it was possible, man. It's fucking Hoosier's fault, man. It was fucking <laughs> movies like that. Although they lose in Hoosier's, don't they, at the end? Is it a Pyrrhic um, victory? I don't even remember. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, I kind of thought that that even even in the midst of this, and you had all these people on Twitter that were like, "Well, mathematically, he's still not out. The majority of the delegates are still out there." And I was like, "Oh shoot, it's possible. We can go to the convention, and something could happen." You know. And but now I think it's pretty safe to say. I mean, Sanders even explicitly said that Biden will be the nominee. Um, whether or not that's true, whether or not he actually makes it himself. To the convention, there's all this stirring, talking about fucking Cuomo now. Like, what? How fucking fickle is the Democratic, the DNC right now? By the way, it's like, just who's the darling of the month? It's always shifting, right? It goes from Beto to a moment, I guess Kamala Harris. Then it had Warren had her day. Then Pete came in and he was the darling. And then of course now it's fucking Biden. But now people are tired of Biden because they realize he probably isn't capable. And so now it's like this guy who is supposedly the hero in the midst of a crisis. Um, even though there's obviously a lot of evidence to the contrary of that as well. But now Cuomo is the guy that people are like, I think he's going to actually come up out of the convention and be the one. It's like, what the fuck, dude? Yeah, with the argument like, being uh, he at least looks like and acts like a leader. Biden yeah. doesn't even have that going for him. It's just because he lifts and he's got broad shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so it's kind of shitty. Um, I will say this, though. And then I'll just stop talking and let you start commenting and venting as well. Uh, I guess this will be a dual shitty minute. Um, I'm not. I'm not so sure. I feel like I do have. Um, this is kind of a, a. It's tangential to the immediate news, but there's so much that's just like assumed that somehow Biden cannot beat Trump, right? That like only Bernie could beat Trump, and usually it's the hardcore Bernie stands. Usually it's kind of like the Jacobin reader types, right? Um, those who probably have a rose in their bio next to their name on Twitter or something. And I, I'm just not so sure that's the case. Like, yeah, is Biden, you know, kind of, it, d- does he seem like a weak candidate? Yeah, I tweeted out even recently. I said, you know, when you look in the history books about the candidate who loses an election to Donald Trump, you read the name Joe Biden, just like you would read the name John Kerry. He has like big time John Kerry energy, probably even less, actually, just because of his declining, at least public uh, speaking um, capacities. And so 
you know, I, I don't really think he's like this tremendous candidate. He's got a sketchy record, all this other stuff. But he, I don't know, man. I don't know how many kind of like lukewarm liberals. I don't know how many people who were going to vote for Bernie or who did vote for Bernie in the primaries thus far are going to uh, support him. I know that Biden doesn't like elicit or rouse the the excitement like Obama did when, what, 68 million people came out to vote or something like that. But you need between like, what, 60 and 70 million people to come out and vote for you. And what was it, like 63 voted for Hillary or something like that? And like 60, 61-ish voted for Trump? So like, can can you get like 65, 68 million people to come out and vote for Biden? I mean, maybe not, but, but I'm not, I'm just not sure that it's guaranteed that Biden loses to Trump. And the only reason I'm saying this isn't because I think that Trump is a strong, I'm sorry, that Biden's a strong candidate, but it's more because I think this sentiment reveals a type of, uh, almost like a dogmatism or a fanaticism that I think comes from like a clouded form of rationality a lot of times, right? It's just, we believe in it so much. This is the only thing that we want and therefore, you know, it, nothing else will work. And it, I, I'm just, it, and it's not even like a judgment that I'm making. It's more of like an analytical point, right? It's not like I I'm think that that's wrong and you should somehow be censured for thinking that way. But it's more just, I just don't buy that frame of thinking. I'm just not so sure that that's the case. I feel like it's more of a kind of like zealous expression than it is um, an actual kind of like political point. And yeah, obviously, Twitter and social media shouldn't always be taken for being a site of analysis. It's not. It is a lot of just zealotry or sarcasm. And so, I mean, you don't know how much of that is real or how much of it is just rhetoric, right? That that line is really blurred on social media. But nevertheless, to the extent that it is serious and that a lot of like blue check journalisty media types reiterate that point, I'm just not so sure that I buy it. So I don't know. That's the only thing. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, dude. There's a lot of confirmation bias going around. Like there's a lot of evidence that Biden's a really weak candidate. We talked, I think we talked uh, previously about the enthusiasm index, right? Which is something about, yeah. there's, there's numbers you can tell about uh, whether a candidate's supporters are enthusiastic for their candidate, and that pretends um, or correlates very uh, positively with whether or not that person usually ends up getting elected. And Biden's enthusiasm indices are the worst of any candidate in modern history. Um, <laughs> there's also the fact that he doesn't have a platform. He appears to be cognitively declining very fast. Um, no one can mention a single policy that he actually supports, it seems like. Um, yeah, lots of I, no, no, I love it when, <laughs> when you actually talk with a Biden supporter and you're like, so what policies do you support? Have you noticed that it, I mean, I've seen screen caps of this now. It's like dozens of times. First of all, nobody answers it. And yeah, usually it's Trump. just a response. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's like, what, why are you, why are you asking this? What's your motivation behind asking this uh, penetrating question? It's like, no, <laughs> it's a fucking simple, obvious question. The kind of thing you might have to do in a general election is say why someone should vote right. for you. Um, yeah, so there's lots of reasons to think he's a weak candidate, obviously, right? I mean, those are right on the surface. You can't really doubt those, um, other than to just sort of pretend they're not there during a primary um, season. Uh, there's also reasons to think he's a strong candidate only really because he's going against the most unpopular president in modern history, right? So um, th this this notion that uh, because the enthusiasm for Biden is um, so low, that means that he's automatically going to lose that he's a worse candidate than Hillary, which he is, right, um, doesn't really take into account the fact that a lot of people will come out to vote against Trump. That will be their motivation, not their own material interests necessarily, um, or to bring about a better future other than just to not bring about a worse one, right? So um, I don't know if that means he's going to win. 
I don't think we know that yet. I think there's a lot of talk about the fact that Biden's for sure going to win the popular vote, it seems like, right? Um, very likely. That doesn't mean anything, right? Um, whether he can win Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Florida are going to be the keys because of our fucked up electoral system. So um, I don't think we really have a good idea on, on those things yet. And they'll probably become more clear as we get closer to November. But um, And we see how you know the whole general um, right. season sort of... Um, goes through and whether or not the, the two of them even debate. I mean, I don't think it's a, there's a non-zero chance that they just don't even debate at all. And who knows which one of them would even drop out because they both have a lot to lose um, by debating, it seems. Although I, yeah. I think Trump probably is more likely to want to debate Biden than he would have Bernie or somebody else. Um, but yeah, I mean, we can save all that kind of prognostication for the summer. Right now, hmm. it does seem like, and I agree with you, you know, it's, I don't want to, like celebrate moral victories and talk about how it's so great to lose, right? Even though you were dignified and being on the right side of things. But there is a sense in which I was thinking yesterday a lot about Bernie is going to be the most important political figure for an entire generation of people who are between, you know, 20 and, you know, 40 right now, right? Like you know what's crazy? I almost tweeted that exact same thing last night, and it was with a little tinge of kind of um, some some humor in it as well, which is that isn't it funny that the most important political figure in my life, like when I look back on my life when I'm in my 70s or 80s, that the most important political figure will have been a congressman who lost two primary elections. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? And hmm. who probably isn't going to be very famous for anything else other than losing twice. Um, and that may seem like, oh, yeah, it's just like a, you know, moral victory bullshit, right? Yet again, lefties just care about the the, the, the loser that they love, right? The lovable loser. When hmm. it's not really about that, right? Uh, obviously, we wanted him to win and did everything we could to win. Um, he had more enthusiastic support, more donors, more canvassers, more door knockers than anybody in history. And he was beat by a guy who had none of it, any of those things, right? Which is an incredibly sad state of affairs. Um, you could have the media against everything else and still win. Um, but here's the here's the problem with that. So, so a lot of people translate that. The Bernie stands translate that as that proves that people care more about Bernie. And I think what that proves is that when they care about Bernie, they care about the movement. They care about be, because it's not about him and it's not about the policies. And this is where so many people, like even like Matt Iglesias, totally get this fucking wrong because they're just technocrats. So they only think about things in terms of like the the politico techno instruments, like the law and the policies. That's all they think about. Um, whereas this is much more about like a larger socialist reorientation of uh, social framework or framing society, let's say. And so when people bought into the Bernie campaign, they bought into it with a larger intensity or with a greater like magnitude of commitment and participation because they were participating in this larger quote-unquote spirit so to speak right yeah this isn't but, going anywhere right in the same way that occupy yeah. translated into um eventually the bernie campaign and a, and a lot of same people right? right um this isn't going yeah. anywhere except for maybe the fact that there are absolutely zero gen xers to take up this mantle <laughs> there's like nobody mm. It just skips mm. the entire Gen X generation. But yeah, proceed. No, yeah. Uh, um, so there's a greater intensity, a greater fervor, uh, a greater participatory excitement and participatory experience by the Not Me Us movement. 
But at the same time, they oftentimes interpret it. A lot of the kind of like Bernie Stam blue check types really want to interpret this as somehow demonstrating that. And I never, it never felt right with me when they would say this and I would read this shit. They want to interpret this as somehow translating into the fact that he can just easily beat Trump because he can stir up this type of fervor. But really, uh, I think that they're blinded by their own kind of like emotional investment. Because really, what it kind of indicated was is that, yeah, the people that buy into it, the people that are inclined in that way, buy it buy into it intensely. But nevertheless, the majority of people were still not buying into it. Now, whether it's because of media manipulation, because they don't think that he can win, uh, that's a secondary issue. I mean, it's, it, it matters, it's related, but it's not kind of germane to the point right now, which is more just that that doesn't necessarily mean like they want to suppose that somehow he was the stronger candidate in the competition based on the rules and the structures that are currently established. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's important to point out that um, people weren't, you just mentioned that the majority of people weren't buying into the Bernie thing, which is of course true, right? And that's eventually, you know, why he lost. But it's important to point out that the Demo- Democrats as a, as a whole are on Bernie's side when it comes to the policy and the issues. Pretty much every mm-hmm. state polling showed that Democrats largely thought Bernie shared their um, vision of the future, of a better future, and what right. Democrats should be fighting for in terms of policy. There's a quite a large minority of people who thought that Joe Biden was for Medicare for all because they just assumed every Democrat would be, right? Um, <laughs> so the only reason why those you know people didn't end up siding with you know the Bernie side of things was just because they thought that he couldn't beat Trump, and that was their number one issue. Mm. They, they were single issue voters, and their single issue was someone who's quote unquote electable. And that notion of electability entirely comes from the media, right? It's all about yeah. what the party leaders and the media tell you is the case. And that was the the one thing that people kept trumpeting about Biden or any centrist really was that they're electable because they can pick up the disaffected Republicans, right? Um, which maybe that's true, maybe it's not. We did, that's totally um, abstract, and no one really knows <laughs> if that's hmm. true, right? Yeah. So uh, on either yeah, side, yeah. right? Um, the lefties who want to point out that that won't happen because it didn't happen in 2016 might be wrong also because, you know, who knows, maybe Biden being a man is all that matters. <laughs> and he's not yeah. the worst candidate. And maybe, and, and maybe, the, maybe the hatred for Trump will be so strong that we just don't know. Maybe this economic recession, his handling of the pandemic will kind of trigger different results. It's, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of uncertainty out there. Yeah, incredible amount of uncertainty. Uh, if anything, we should look at what life was like five weeks ago and realize there's no way we can predict the political mm. future, right? Mm. Um, even three weeks ago, we were talking about uh, Trump starting basic income, giving everyone Trump care for all, and issuing in a socialist future to outflank the Dems from the left. Um, that kind of stopped like two weeks ago. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, yeah, who knows anything? But just want to make my, my quick point here that it's funny that the, the most important political figure for people between 20 and 40 is probably going to be Bernie, even though he never actually... Um, did anything other than, you know, be in Congress for, and being Senate for Vermont. Um, it's kind of like, you know how they say the Velvet Underground, like seven people, like a handful of people ever saw them live, but then everyone who did started a band. And that's, that became <laughs> like one of the most important bands in rock music, right? Um, mm. it's, it's that kind of thing, right? Like, uh, he never actually, he's not going to be a figure that people who are, you know, under 18 have really ever heard of um, once they, you know, come of age politically. Um, and he's probably not going to be a huge figure in the history books, right? But in terms of people's imaginations and in terms of how you affect 
um, what they think about and what they care about politically, he's going to be one of the biggest figures that there is. And I don't know, maybe maybe that's enough to be his legacy. I hope that it is, right? Because uh, I do care a little bit about his legacy, um, not because it's the most important thing, but just because it's a thing. And mm. I hope that at the very least, um, that will be something that other people can take up um, and lead the movement because I don't think we need to have, we can talk more about this in the summer. I think it'll be a thing that we keep talking about a lot, whether it's, you know, electoral politics versus like direct action stuff in local politics and whether um, this primary is proof that electoral politics is doomed to have anything good mm. come out of it. And I don't think that's the case. Um, but it does mean that there have to be new leading figures and probably the most pessimistic take you can have right now is that the only people who seem like they're ready to take up this mantle are too young to do it. Mm. And that's, that's a sad state of affairs. And I, I want, I want the book that writes about why the Gen Xers are the way that they are. Cause it's pretty incredible that this entire movement literally has boomers and millennials and zoomers. And there's like not a single Gen Xer of any note. <laughs> That can't be an accident, right? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. I know. I hate generational uh, critique, but there's something there. (laughs) I know. I wonder, I wonder what the deal is. I, um, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe we'll see, uh, some interesting activism and activity at the level of state legislatures. So more local politics. Um, I've, I mean, I never paid attention to local politics when I was younger. And so I don't know if that was just because of my bubble. So take this as just really little anecdotal evidence, but I have seen so much involvement from people who are like, you know, under 30, let's say that are getting involved in local politics, state legislature, they're running for like state Senate or for council positions and things like that. I mean, so much more, and it could also just be because of my feed and, and my how it's curated and who shares things that come into my purview, but um, it's extremely encouraging to just know that there's a, a tremendous amount of um, excitement and dedication to those levels as well, which are extremely important. So you have a lot of like Justice Democrat types and Dem Social dem types that are um being involved are getting involved in those things and so i mean that might be interesting so you get a lot of young people maybe uh you know 25 to 30 year olds that are working local government and then a lot of younger people even too like the zoomer generation who are kind of more going to be involved in student groups and local activism you know climate groups and things like that and then uh, that they'll kind of like be forged in those fires so by the time that they do become older they'll already have been organizers and some of them will have been politicians and bureaucrats, which we need them as well, right? And some of them will have gone into the private sector, and some of them will have gone into, um, I was going to say into education, but I think the university system is going to fall apart after this pandemic, so I have no idea. Um, but some <laughs> of them will have, have become educators, and, and there will be like a dispersal, you know? And in a weird way, I mean, if we can even make this uh, into the transition, uh, in something that they talk about in the book Inventing the Future and that we talk about in the film is this idea of building a, a Mont Pelerin of the left, right? Mm-hmm. This idea of um, creating a group of people who uh, can kind of 
situate themselves, embed themselves into these positions of kind of counter-hegemonic power so that they can learn how to build power, so they can learn how to be with people, so that they can learn how to construct policy, so they can learn how to deal with failures, and so they can learn how to deal with successes. And uh, then they can be positioned in the education, or they can be positioned in government offices, or they can be positioned in the private sector, they can be positioned in all kinds of various places, um, so that they can offer that alternative, not just uh, as individuals, but who are kind of the counter-hegemon. And so maybe, maybe that's how it works. You know, maybe this... That's a very optimistic take, and I have no idea, but maybe that's one of the paths that um, that could come out of this whole, this whole, whatever it was, situation, set of events. That's a good segue, I think, to start talking about this film, yeah? Sweet, dude, I'm down. Okay, so I watched it um, uh, a couple days ago, and, well, I loved it, first of all. It was super interesting and super fun to watch and I felt bewildered through most of it that's hopefully something that you can help solve unless bewilderment's the point and then you know what you, know, you said achieved. bewildered and a huge smile came across my face <laughs> so not when you said you loved it when you said you were bewildered that's what made me smile yeah you would right <laughs> yeah so I guess the first thing I want to ask is maybe at the very beginning for those who maybe are unfamiliar or coming to our podcast you know later in it's in it's uh um in it's life here what was your involvement with the project? Can you give a brief little synopsis of, of the history of your involvement with it? Yeah, so basically I was living in L.A. from 2014 to 2016. Well, between L.A. and then I was on the East Coast doing some work as a video director. And then I was in L.A. working at a production company for about a year, a little over a year. And producing documentaries, online content, commercials, things like that. I grew up in the entertainment industry um, in front of the camera more so. But then I started doing some stuff behind the scenes and producing, directing short films, doing music videos. Um, got involved with a couple small features when I lived in the UK. So in the LA, and then I moved back to LA, which is where I'm from. I decided that I would like throw myself into that world fully. And, uh, and I eventually ended up getting kind of dissatisfied for the second time that I... Uh, have because I left LA once before to pursue graduate school or to pursue school and then I thought I would mature enough and that I could handle LA again and I went back and I realized that I'm just not constituted for uh, LA because I'm too much of a dreamer Um, and uh, (laughs) and so I decided to leave my job uh, there again and um, went back into like the academic world. I was still doing some freelance work and things like that, but um, I, I quit my job at the production company. But I was in Scotland in the library at the University of Dundee, and I was reading the book, Inventing the Future. And I was living, uh, I, think, I think at the time I was staying with my friend Scott, and I think maybe he even let me borrow the book. I can't remember because I actually read a lot of it on my phone, which I think is kind of really an interesting thing. Um, but <laughs> I, uh, I think he may be. That, how is that even possible? Well, I mean, it's very small, but like the 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 iPhone version, or was it an iPhone that I had at the time? Whatever it was, the phone version of the book is like meant for the book, so it's only got like I don't know, two hundred word, not even two hundred characters per page, or something like that. So. <laughs> The font, the font is not like trying to squeeze the pages onto a tiny, tiny screen. It actually like totally changes it. So instead of the book being what, like 220 pages or whatever it is, it's like a thousand, a thousand swipes. <laughs> but um, 
So who, who's going to create the app that actually makes a book into tweets with the with the Twitter like avatar being the author or the book cover, and then they like intersperse it throughout your Twitter feed without you knowing? So it's just like you're you could totally do that with a with a bot. <gasps> if yeah. anyone is a coder out there, I will do that with my book. <laughs> I mean, Roman and Littlefield might not like that now that I say that out loud, <laughs> but uh, we could figure something out. So if you're a coder and you could figure that out, hit me up because that would be awesome. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'm sitting in the library and I'm reading the book and I knew both Nick and Alex, the authors of the book, Nick Cernick and Alex Williams. I knew both of them because of conferences and there they were at the time they both did i think they both did it at the same university but they were doing phd's at lse at the london school of economics um in like international relations and philosophy and stuff like that and so i had been involved with them like both with organizing conferences that they attended but also just being at sessions and things like that and you know you go out drinking like the conference scene in the uk was so amazing because everyone just hangs out for a few days and um, the conferences in scotland especially were always just so amazing it was just people hanging out you know, sitting at a pub talking philosophy for three days straight. And so, you know, we kind of got like chummy. Um, so I knew them relatively well. And as soon as I read the book in my mind, actually it was like when I was like two thirds of the way through it, I said, this needs to be made into a documentary. This needs to be made into a film. And this is because I'm still thinking in terms of like my producer brain is on. And so I'm thinking this needs to be made into a film. So before I even finished the book, I emailed both Nick and Alex and I said, have you considered adapting this into a documentary really and quick, what immediate... made you think that like what two-thirds of the way through the book made you think this has to be a film gosh i'm trying to remember the exact like thoughts i wish i remembered exactly where i was when the thought hit me but i think part of it was just because of where i was in my life i was kind of just interpreting the world in terms of media like visual media content maybe mm-hmm. um but then i think i think it was also that it just felt like this information needed to be communicated in different formats. It needed to be expressed in different formats. And it, as I was reading it, well, and this is going to be interesting because the way that I first envisioned what the film should be changed, and I'll tell you the event that made it change into what the film eventually became. Um, and it's not what you might think it is. It has nothing to do with Isaiah, actually, um, who is the the director who kind of like made the concepts that I had into what the final product is. But actually, the event that made me seek out Isaiah in the first place was a meeting that I had in a cafe with Alex Williams in London one time, talking about his ideas for the film. Um, but And then in a couple of Skype conversations that I had with Nick before we even got Isaiah on board with the project. But I was reading it and I thought like, I think I had just also gotten really into Adam Curtis documentaries and I was like, fuck, this, this needs to be communicated in a similar way, yeah. right? Like this needs to be made where we can interview all these people. And I initially thought like, you know, talking head, kind of Alex Gibney, or maybe you could even go a little bit weirder and go Adam Curtis style documentary. That's what I was thinking. And it just felt very timely as well. So that was like the initial thing. If Mount um, Pelerin had had access, the Mount Pelerin Society had access to documentaries, they would have made documentaries, right? Oh, fucking A, they would have made them. I mean, like, like we talk about Francis Schaeffer and Labrie, you know, they made books, but didn't he also make, like, audio recordings and shit? 
Yeah, he you made the, the what should you do? Oh, um, what's that famous book called? What now shall we do, or yeah. how now shall we live, or some shit like that? Yeah, he made the documentary of that, and I remember watching that thing. What should you do with your life, or whatever the fuck it is? <laughs> I can never remember, but yeah, um, yeah, exactly. So for sure, Mont Pelerin would have done that, and I, I was reading this, and you know, just everything is kind of moving towards digital technology. So this is about what 2015 now that I'm re- or 2016 now that I'm reading this. And, um, and so it's like, yeah, I mean, it just, it just felt like the information in this book. And you know what? The book is structured in such a really kind of nice and easy and accessible manner. You've got the critique of what they call folk politics, the critique of like horizontal localism, stuff like that. And then the kind of advocacy for counter hegemonic strategies. And then you have the four demands and the four demands just unfold sequentially. And so it's organized already like a script. And I almost felt like you could just fucking read this and talk about this sequentially and you would be able to adequately do justice to the content of the book. So that was like, that was the initial moment when I'm sitting there in the library at night alone. I literally remember what seat I was sitting in. I remember I put the, I put it down and I emailed before I even finished and then I continued to finish the book. So I, I remember that was the moment. That was the that was the initial moment, and then of course it changed a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty awesome thing to decide halfway through a project that it needs to be something, <laughs> and then mm-hmm. doing it before finishing the book. I like that. Yeah, You're caught by the Holy Spirit. I, it was the whole. It was the stirring for sure. But I'm always overly ambitious, you know. Like <laughs> it's yeah. What is it? My uh, my reach exceeds exceeds my grasp, or whatever. Um, totally all the time. My imagination exceeds my grasp. All the time. <laughs> so, yeah, so I emailed him, and then I was in Scotland at the time, and I was just so happy. I don't remember what the occasion was, but I was going to be in London, like, uh, a month or whatever it was later. Um, and so, of course, they tell me that, yeah, they, they're interested in this, but they don't own the rights. Obviously, Verso, the publisher, owns the rights towards uh, production and media, so I had to then secure the rights through Verso. And Verso were amazing. They were so excited to get involved. And I had to like show them like show reels of other stuff that I'd produced and stuff like that. But after they saw that, they were totally cool to sign off with it. And then because of Nick and Alex's recommendation. Um, and so Verso got totally on board with it. And that was great. So now we're off and running. Now it's squarely on my shoulders. Let's do it. So I reached out to one of my best friends in the film industry. Someone that I, I don't, he hasn't been on this podcast, has he? But I used to do another podcast with him, Keir Seward. And I reached out to Keir, who's a phenomenal director. And I said, dude, I've got this project. Um, it's an adaptation of this book that was a really phenomenal kind of best-selling book around the world, translated in all these languages. I said, would you be interested? And he said, well, let me let me have a look at the book. And he had to think about it for a little bit, and he came back to me, and he ultimately he said, you know what, dude, I just don't think I'm right for this project. And we kind of talked through it, and it's just politically he's not in the same space as me. Not that he's, he's left-leaning, but um, he's just like politically this just isn't my world, kind of like the technical abstract stuff. That's not really my space. Um, he's like – and I'm not really a documentary filmmaker. And I was like, yeah, yeah, cool. I get it. I get it. He's like uh, – he's like, but maybe. He's like, let's continue to think about it. If Like maybe we can make it work. And I was like, okay. So then I get to this meeting with Alex in London and Alex basically has this idea that the film needs to be not just like a um, a representation of the ideas and the concepts of the book, but that they would love to expand the ideas of the book into like different artistic manifestations. 
like I think ultimately the way that I, from what I took from the meeting was that like that there would be poetry inspired by these ideas that that there would be uh there could be like you know a, a fucking theater performances there could be political protest uh styles there could be conferences organized there could be classrooms uh structured around there could be nights at the pub i mean there could be just this endless array of expressions of the spirit of the book more than just representations of the ideas of the book and in the course of that conversation it became very clear to me that the formal element of the film had to be different than just a kind of talking head documentary right and alex and i talked a little bit about some more avant-garde and indie filmmakers that he really liked the work of and other artists and things like that and I could definitely tell that they thought that it would that it would be truer to the spirit of the text is if we treated the text like a living entity rather than like a static document that needed to be reproduced. And um, so that kind of changed my whole outlook on things. And at that point, then, I didn't really know what to do. And I serendipitously at the same time, like I said, I was living uh, with my buddy Scott in Dundee at the time. Um, I subscribed to this uh, streaming service that actually sponsors us called Mubi. And Mubi happened to be showing an experimental documentary by a guy named Isaiah Medina called 8888. And I watched it and I said, this guy is unreal. And I said, this is the guy. It just everything that I saw in that spoke kind of along the same lines of what Alex and I had just finished talking weeks earlier or whatever it was um it was kind of around the same time and i said i need to reach out to isaiah and so i did i reached out to isaiah and isaiah came back to me and was like dude i I kind of praised his film and stuff like that and he was like bro he's like i'm so glad that you reached out to me and he's like it's so crazy that you're working on this i was literally just in new york last week at an event with nick alex and elon bedu (laughs) (laughs) And they were talking about the ideas and inventing the future. And he's like, and I'm totally into this. And he's like, I fucking love this book. I'm totally down for this. He's like, I want to do this. Um, and the rest is history. Wow. That's quite the preamble. It was pretty cool. Like, I don't buy into serendipity and stuff like that, but it was very serendipitous, you know? Yeah, it doesn't hurt when that stuff works out that way, when the universe is on your side a little bit. Yeah, exactly. So you talked a, a, a bit about there a minute ago about um, – the the choice to move from the like more proper documentary form or maybe even more like the uh adam curtis like what would you call that like a philosophical documentary or ideological it's like journalism because he he calls himself a journalist so it's like a philosophical essay it's like a journalistic cinematic essay yeah it is like an essay form yeah in film yeah so the choice to go from even that to what would you call this like the like the what is an art documentary called (laughs) <laughs> uh, I mean, I, it's it's really hard to even call it a documentary in uh, in kind of like a traditional sense. It, it's it's a cinematic. It's a it's a formal experimental cinematic adaptation. But if it is a documentary, it's like some kind of avant garde documentary. Yeah. So um, I was thinking as you were saying this idea that that um, you and Nick and Alex and, and Isaiah wanted to do not the sort of representational form, which is, to me, it sounds like 
what probably most people would think a documentary is ultimately sort of means to an end, right? Um, the documentary itself yeah. is sort of a vehicle to deliver information or concepts or ideas or history or whatever um, to persons, right? And so the documentary yeah. itself, it's going to have some artistic elements, right? So you want it to be nice looking and you want it to flow in a certain way and all that. But really, that's all ultimately not for its own sake, but for as a means to an end, to make it the, the vehicle, um, uh, the, the information vehicle aspect of it more efficacious, right? It's sort of the yeah. ultimate guiding principle at the very least, the documentary. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas this is sort of rejecting that notion and going for the, well, this piece needs to have value for its own sake, right? It's an end right. in itself. It's not a means to an end. That seems to be mm. like the major conceptual difference between this kind of cinematic uh, art adaptation as opposed to a more traditional documentary. Um, mm. Is that kind of capturing the the idea a little bit? Yeah, I'm writing these notes down as you're talking. Um, I think oftentimes documentaries are boring. Um, it's obviously not <laughs> wow, that's always a, that's the case. Quite the hot take from you, Austin. Yeah, uh, it's not always the case. There are some interesting. I, I think did we talk about it on this podcast? You know, Orson Welles' "F for Fake" is a really interesting documentary. Mm-hmm. Sometimes uh, "Exit Through the Gift Shop" is kind of fun. Um, I guess a couple of Michael Moore documentaries. I like Gibney, but I think when when a documentary is really strong, it's because there's either an extremely compelling subject, uh, an extremely compelling or interesting vision. Or there's something interesting formally that's going on. And a lot of times, if you can meld those together, then you have a really excellent documentary. You know, like there's a documentary called Ticklish that came out recently uh, that was about like people who uh, kind of in, engage in like, it's like competitive I've, I've tickling. I've heard that's and, weird as fuck. <laughs> yeah, but it's so weird that it's so interesting, right? And I've got a friend who did a documentary on baristas, which you would think, what the fuck? But there's like these competitive baristas and so he goes into like the the like I think it was the national the U.S. national barista championships, and so it was something that was just a world that I am not familiar with. So it was a nice informational journey into a world with which I would have been unfamiliar otherwise. In that sense, it's really nice. However, even when you do something interesting like that, a lot of times you can run the risk because it's just purely an informational vehicle, like you say, that you can oftentimes dumb down the information because in the visual medium, when you especially if you're adapting a book, like I recently just saw. Thomas Piketty's, the adaptation of his book, Capital in the 21st Century, at the Sydney Film Festival last year. And it's a really good documentary in the sense that it is a great vehicle for the information in that book. I would love to show that documentary to my students, right? If I was teaching a class on, like, inequality or uh, international political economy or something along those lines, um, history classes I think it'll be great for, I would absolutely, 100%, as a matter of fact, I will at some point show that documentary to students. It just will happen. I've been lobbying people in the department at the university here, actually in multiple departments at the university here, that they need to check out this documentary and try to incorporate it into their syllabi, right? Um, Wait, Austin, really quick, just a note. Yeah. Can you please uh, lobby Piketty to make the uh, cinematic adaptation of Capital Not Eology? I want to see that in, in your hands. (laughs) <laughs> can yeah me and isaiah can we do it that one <laughs> yeah exactly that would be amazing <laughs> <laughs> oh god okay deal i'll reach out to him um i actually know the director of capital in the 21st century i mean not well but i introduced myself to him afterwards uh at, at the screening so maybe i'll uh i'll see if he wants to work with me but um but yeah so you can oftentimes dumb down the information right like capital in the 21st century is a massive behemoth of a book and it's very technical and it goes through a lot of like accounting data and things like that and so you oftentimes you you have to compress all of that 
just because the written word, it's uh, when it's translated into the visual, it, there's a, a time differential differentiation there. So you have to take that into account. And the book is like 700 pages or something ridiculous like that. So that you can't obviously do justice to all the pages. And then you're going to have to miss out on a lot of the information. So oftentimes you lose a lot of either the flow of the argument or the depth or the specificities. And that's fine. Um, and I think that a lot of times people then, I think what that does is that kind of trains people to view, and this is like my final point, to view the cinematic language as sort of being and this would be maybe even like a kind of like art critical or an art theory uh, investigation to view the cinematic form um, as being like a lesser artistic medium, right? Like it's not high arts, it's the low arts or something along those lines. And I think that oftentimes people view the cinematic language in that way. And, and so I think for us, like one of the really important things is we wanted to speak the cinematic language in a way that wasn't trapped either within the dumbing down of just like being an informational vehicle or in kind of being trapped into the formal kind of just sitting down talking or even doing something more like a kind of journalistic film essay which I think you could still do there is a version of this film that you can make or let's say a version of an adaptation of the book that you could make that would be more like Adam Courtesy or Talking Headsy um, but but we wanted to do something that kind of spoke a different cinematic language. And I think that that's really important, is that cinema is a language in itself. And when you engage in the act of representation, you're actually kind of like imposing um, almost the written word onto the cinematic form, rather than trying to do something where the form of cinema itself speaks or communicates, let's say, in its own way. Good, good. So I think that probably the obvious... Um criticism you'd, you'd get of that of that project and i'm sure you've already heard this from people would be um sure that's all fine and good from an artistic perspective but this is ultimately a book that's that's uh, and a set of ideas that's oriented towards political and social change right and doesn't the art film form like this alienate um that broader audience and that's sort of need for uh, large-scale structural change that it seems like these ideas are bent towards. Like so I could easily see someone thinking there's sort of an internal tension between those things. What would you say to mm. that? So two things. One, I, th I would say, is it not also a disservice to the formal, let's say, spiritual and even contextual elements of the book if you neglect some of those more radical components and you just turn it into a talking head documentary and so you allow for people to consume it like they would any other commodity because then the film just becomes a commodity that people come into the cinema with their own expectations nothing shocks them to thought nothing breaks down any of their presuppositions maybe they get some more information and so they can critically and intellectually assent to more facts they can have more knowledge but are they really thinking differently right? Has thought really been challenged? Has thought really occurred? So then I would say that, that that's one pitfall, right? But then perhaps even more than that, I also think that, and this is what I've heard a lot, and it's so interesting because Isaiah and I talk like every day now since the launch of the film, and there's been a huge shitstorm online about this film where people are divided. from Everything from this is a masterpiece, this is one of the best films of the decade, to this is like neo-fascist, uh, techno- uh, like uh, neoliberal bullshit, right? Um, or nonsense. It's like everything in between. And it's been really interesting to talk about that. And I actually emailed both Nick and Alex and I was like, is this what 
you guys got when you guys released this book? <laughs> and they were like, yeah, dude. They're like, just wait till people start threatening you physically. <laughs> I'm like, Jesus, man. Um, uh, I've never been called a neo-fascist and a neoliberal in the same breath before. So this is this is all new for me. Um, but the other thing, too, is one of the, the, the critiques that we've gotten. Actually, it was really one critique that set off a chain of responses to that critique and then reinforcements of that critique was that this is just too inaccessible and working class people wouldn't get this. But this is actually like a, a kind of petite bourgeois person that made this critique. And interestingly enough, a lot of the working class people that I have encountered that have actually watched the film have spoken very highly of the film. Even if they said they felt that a lot of it was over their head or a little bit too much or too chaotic, they still said there was something in it that resonated with them. And even someone like my mom, who is not college educated, my mom is not really politically involved whatsoever, she's not in any way a formal Marxist. My mom is a lovely human and wants to like save people and dogs and shit like that. So she's inclined towards like an altruism, but she's not like academically educated towards these things. My mom articulated ideas to me about this film. She was like, oh, it's about this and about that. And you want to do this and you want to do that. And you want to speak to this, but you can't do that because this, that, and this, that and money and power and all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, fuck yeah. Like I did not think my mom was going to quote unquote, get it, but she did. Right. So I think that I think that it does a, a lot of disservice to the capacity of people who aren't already like versed in film criticism and who aren't themselves college educated or maybe a little bit kind of petit bourgeois themselves. I think that those takes kind of do a disservice to actual working class people. And I do think that yeah, it is there are going to be some things that are going to kind of be quite abstruse. Um, but at the same time, I think that uh, I don't want to diminish people's capacity. I think that that um, I've had people who don't speak English very well who have watched this film, and they didn't get everything, but they found it intriguing or they found certain things interesting. And if we can stimulate that type of productive or critical engagement with the cinematic expression, then I think that's, that's fucking great. Yeah, I mean, to kind of combine your two points there, um, there's there's like a a sort of utilitarian logic to the traditional documentary, right? Which is like mm. the reason we make this documentary, since it's a, you know, a means to an end, um, its purpose is to serve as this vehicle for information, to get that information out to as many people so it will do the most good because information to persons equals um, like welfare up <laughs> or some like really right. simplified, naive equation um, for how the world gets better. And that's just so obviously wrong for so many reasons that we talk all about why utilitarianism is wrong in this podcast all the time. So we don't have to reiterate that, but um, hmm. there's something, and I like your, your point that there's an important difference between information and knowledge hmm. and traditional documentaries are oriented towards information delivery, right? And to get as much information and as neat a package that's as easily digestible as possible. And this, the whole, the, the set of ideas and the, and the philosophy surrounding this, this book and, um, inventing the future as a whole and the whole like media enterprise, whatever it ends up being is not oriented in that way. Right. Uh, it's about mm. knowledge, which in some ways is going to be different. That's a philosophical issue in what ways it's different than information, but it clearly is right. There's something about knowledge that you can act on that information by itself doesn't get you to, uh, to that. Right. It doesn't get you to the practical syllogism in the way that knowledge does. And so shocking to thought seems like the important thing here in yeah. the terms that you used. Right. And that traditional documentaries, because they follow that predictable pattern, usually you just walk out and say, well, I'm so glad that I have this information now. And then nothing changes. Whereas shocking to thought is the thing that can happen in a multitude of ways. It's not just, you're not expecting one response 
uh, as you are in a documentary, which is, wow, that's an important issue, right? Uh, yeah. That's the only response you can really properly have, otherwise you didn't get it. There's mm. many different responses you can have to this type of a film. Uh, and they'd all yeah. be right. It's like a pluralism um, of effects that it can have. And they can even be in tension, mm. and that's totally fine. Uh, you shouldn't come out of it as a neo-fascist, right? There's some wrong answers, too. But um, <laughs> there's many right answers and many wrong ones, too. Um, so it strikes me that, you know, like uh, a working class person, your mom, an academic philosopher, right? An economist, whatever, can all come out of this movie with different responses that would all be all be good and all be in some sense correct, right? Um, be appropriate, maybe is a better term. Um, and that's... And that's fair, even if it ends up being the case, and I imagine it will be the case, that fewer people will watch this movie than will have watched it if it was an Adam Curtis-style you know, essay documentary. Yeah. But that's not open, open to the point, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I like what you said that... Uh, I, you didn't say this explicitly, but it made me think that like when you go into like an Alex Gibney documentary to try to get information on Lance Armstrong, right? Which was a great documentary, by the way. I really enjoyed it. You're taken along in a pre-charted narrative. You're taken along a path. And and there are striations that, like, think, I, I like to think of, and this is a very sort of like Deleuze and Guattarian idea, difference between a smooth space and a striated space, right? The striated space is, think about like watching water on a window, and you know how like new raindrops, and it follows the paths that are already created, Right? But yet there's resistance for that water, like when it's running into other bubbles, but then it makes the connections and it kind of like dissolves into them and then it kind of flows in particular ways. There's like a pre-charted condition, whereas if you just have like a blank piece of glass, the water that's going onto that onto that, uh, onto that screen, let's say, onto that surface, um, there's no pre-charted striations that it has to follow. There's no connections to other water droplets that it can make, right? Um, the first water droplet to hit that is in a way, kind of entirely free to move. Obviously, it can't because it doesn't have any sort of, like, agency to move it, but there's no kind of, like, formal limitations imposed upon it based on the surface. Whereas if there are already those striations or there are already those material conditions, then there are only, like, particular paths that it can take and particular connections that it can make. And so the Gibney documentary on Lance Armstrong, you go in there presuming certain things, understanding who Gibney is, understanding that you're going to go see a Talking Head documentary, and understanding that you're going to learn something about this figure that you probably already know something about a little bit, right? This controversial figure, and here you go, you're going to learn some stuff. Maybe you've read some reviews, you've got all these expectations when you go in there. And then you go in there, and nothing truly transforms you. You might learn some stuff that you're like, oh, I didn't know that before. I didn't know that this is how they were using blood doping. I didn't know how on this particular day, this particular trainer did this particular thing. I didn't know this relationship that he had with this person and the kind of governing bodies that they did. So you're going to get a lot of information. But nevertheless, you're not going to truly be kind of like transformed or provoked to think too much about stuff unless you kind of, I mean, there are maybe like some elements of excess where like now you have like a totally different view on doping in sports and you realize that everybody cheats and then maybe that makes you forgive Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire. Or I don't know, whatever. <laughs> like there, there are other connections that you can make beyond that, right? But it's going to be much less. It's going to be to a much smaller degree than if you kind of view um, 
the cinematic form itself as like breaking beyond all of those bounds and kind of bursting at the seams at every moment. And I think that's something that this film does, is it doesn't follow that linear path because it's always bursting at the seams. I think it's perpetually excessive to the point where at times it is bewildering and to the point where at times it is kind of jarring. I've seen the film now in its full form. I've seen it now four times. And I have gotten different things from it every single time because there's so much going on. I don't think you can actually take it all in on the first viewing. And it's really interesting to kind of revisit it and to to encounter that bursting of the seams and to catch a little bit of the overflow in different ways than you did in a previous viewing. And for me, that's so interesting because that creates a type of productive engagement with the film. And it gets beyond that type of linearity of being drawn along a particular narrative and being kind of like fixed within the kind of striated formal framework of typical talking head documentaries. Yeah, there is a sense in which the the talking head documentaries especially have this sort of hierarchical relationship with the viewer, right? Where it's a, it's a teacher-student relationship, right? Um, which itself shouldn't be hierarchical, I think, right? But it often comes across that way. Exactly. Uh, especially in like Western culture, right? So um, this film's not going to have that sort of relationship. It's not talking to you as a teacher um, and the authority. Yeah, I mean, just think about how we treat Michael Moore. Michael Moore is like a, he's like a famous guy now like he has thoughts he's like an authority figure now he's on the news (laughs) and politics thoughts (laughs) capital t thoughts. yeah capital t thoughts right like he is he is a capital t thinker now you know yeah yeah (laughs) that's interesting um juxtaposition there um so yeah i have some questions now about the sort of content and even the the micro form of the film that I, i wanted to address just because i think anybody who watches this and you and you should watch this um this film before I think you, you listen to this episode. So, so even stop now and, and watch the film on YouTube <laughs> before you listen to the rest of this episode. So you can yeah, see more of what we're going to talk about here. Yeah. Link is in the show notes. Check that shit out. And you can just go to YouTube. <laughs> it's inventing the future. So yeah, you can it's right it there. Um, I obviously have almost zero uh, history with sort of um, the art film, like the really avant-garde, style of cinema I man art film is is a term that's kind of thrown around by anybody who you know doesn't make a will ferrell movie nowadays but um <laughs> the sort of really truly avant-garde film i've maybe has some history with like you know david lynch films right because he's the one right. of the avant-garde filmmakers who's actually crossed over into the mainstream a little bit um what is it about the sharp cuts and edits in this film and maybe even just in in, in like sort of avant-garde cinema in general uh, why is it so ubiquitous? Like, what's the point of that? I kept thinking this throughout the film with so mm. many sharp cuts. Um, what do you think is maybe not the effect of that, but what is that like? What is that doing? What's the, the function that that's yeah. serving? Yeah. So first of all, for a really in-depth answer on this, Isaiah, the director of the film, has written about like the philosophy of the cut. So. I think maybe on the the Mubi Notebooks website, they have a, a blog that they produce. Um, if it wasn't there somewhere else, you can Google Isaiah Medina, and it's a different spelling than you might be used to. It's actually spelled like Isaiah, just I-S-I-A-H. Like Isaiah Thomas. And then Medina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, Medina, M-E-D-I-N-A. Um, so Google that. Isaiah in the cut or Isaiah in montage, um, he is a montage filmmaker, so he thinks seriously about the cut. It's so funny when I read a lot of reviews that kind of think that Isaiah is just like ADD or that he's just got like this frenetic, like he's just trying to throw shit together. 
when you know Isaiah, you realize how intentional he is. That there is something extremely important about the enactment of the cut for him. And I think it comes really because of two things. One, his love of Godar, who I think famously says that the truth is in the shot, the lie is in the cut. And I think Isaiah kind of inverts that or plays with that a little bit. And um, and then I think it also comes from his love of montage cinema, particularly Eisenstein, right? He absolutely loves Eisenstein. And there's something about by by using and emulating the montage style that he's one playing with the kind of truth lie language of the cut but also he's situating himself he's embedding himself within the history of cinema since eisenstein is one of the most important formal cinematic filmmakers ever and so i think that there's something going on there that's extremely important there's also some interesting shots of um some uh movies from the lumiere brothers in the film which is also really important, obviously, as they're considered to be the kind of like first uh, people to to really um, develop cinematography in the way that we understand it. And so Isaiah again is is trying to place what he's doing within this larger logic of of cinema. And um, so I think that's extremely important as well. It's uh, it's both about situating and then also about kind of trying to use the montage in a particular way that not only juxtaposes images, but that causes things to come to a halt when he wants them to come to a halt. Not just the visual image either. He does this with the audio as well, which is extremely important, right? Like sounds will start, but they won't complete. And I think that plays with expectation. I think there's like a push and a pull between the audience. And so what you get then, and I'm using this term a lot, but the cinematic language, what you get is a different type of cinematic language, one that doesn't just use like the symphonic buildup of like a typical drama film or a typical like tense moment where it like is this slow build and then all of a sudden you get this crescendo of this symphony that is very manipulative emotionally, right? That pulls you to feel in particular directions. You're supposed to cry now. You're supposed to feel pride now. You're supposed to feel empowered now. The great Rocky song, right? Fuck, I, I listen to that Rocky song now. It could be Eye of the Tiger or it could be the, the one when he's running through the streets, whatever it is. And I feel the montage power or I feel the power of him running through the streets, the climb to the top, you know, of him overcoming the odds or whatever. We're being manipulated. And I don't mean that in a to indict, but I mean that in a just kind of like analytical sense or in a formal sense. You're being manipulated to feel in a particular way. And so Isaiah is playing with that by pulling us into different directions and by pushing us into different directions and by breaking our expectations. And it's not that there is no cinematic manipulation. Of course there is. But it's um, doing so in a different way. Something that doesn't just simply follow that flow of what we're typically accustomed to when we speak the kind of cinematic language of representation that you typically get from both documentaries but even fictional films as well i can't imagine a more zizekian way of thinking about film than to invert the notion that the truth is in the shot the lies in the cut to actually know <laughs> you know sniffle sniffle the truth is in the cut right <laughs> yeah i mean i will say this for people who are interested isaiah he reads a shit ton of philosophy he's extremely versed in philosophy he basically has a graduate degree level of philosophical acumen, right? Um, even though he didn't formally study philosophy at university, he's been in film school and uh, stuff like that, and that's where he studied. But um, he reads a lot of uh, Hegel, post-Hegelian, he loves Bedou, and then he reads a lot of Neger, uh, Negeristani, 
Um, and he reads a lot of kind of like, uh, uh, what would I call it? Like, not not post-structuralist, but he reads a lot of like um, post-Hegelian metaphysical speculative philosophy. Um, he, I think he reads a lot of like Frank Ruda. I think he's like actually like close with Frank Ruda. He reads a lot of math theory. He loves mathematics. So he's really influenced by Zalamea, Fernando Zalamea, who's a philosopher of math. Um, who has a book about, I think it's like synthetic mathematics and stuff like that. So he's really interested in kind of speculative, I would say speculative metaphysics, um, speculative philosophy. And so when he goes into these, these, uh, these, these cinematic activities, he's doing so with kind of a really rich and I think intentional kind of disposition, philosophical disposition. And so that Zizekian, Hegelian inversion, that doesn't surprise me whatsoever because I think that would fit quite well with some of the stuff he would he would be doing. So another thing I noticed um, throughout the film is it seemed like a really intentional juxtaposition in the cuts between nature and human faces. So mm. there were a lot of moments where um, there would be like, you know, a, a blue jay flying uh, with a tree in the background and then immediate cut to like just really emotive human faces. Is that something that you see as well, or am I just kind of throwing shit? Well, what do you there? mean? Can you can you say that again? What do you mean? Just lots of cuts between the two things, like just juxtaposing a vision of of nature, you know, sans humans, and then human mm. faces. Yeah, and then also like robot faces, like Lego plastic robots. Oh, yeah, I'm getting or to shit. that. I'm getting to that. Okay. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that it's extremely important to take the kind of juxtaposition of images, not because you're. It, it's like saying that oh, humans are nature and nature is human. That's kind of too much of an imposition, but rather it's this sort of like playful expression between these things that kind of flatten it. Now, I'm going to kind of come at this from my reading of it, and I think that what it does is it kind of bespeaks of. Um, there's this talk in the book and then in the in the film <clears throat> about how there is no human nature. Right, um, and that like uh, there's there's no like pre-existent or a priori uh, determination of what things are, but that rather there's kind of this endless potency or capacity to recreate. Right, you can recreate human nature, you can cre- recreate markets, you can recreate politics, you can recreate political action. Right, and so we need to come at this not that there's a blank slate, but that rather that there is a sense in which there is an unbounded potency. Right, and that we need to kind of like tap into that to recreate in particular ways. And so I think what it does when you juxtapose images like that is it really confounds the um, autonomy of those images as being pre-existent categories. So the human face isn't just simply the human face as we understand the human to be as constituted according to the discursive language that says a human is X, Y, and Z. Human is rational animal or political animal or whatever, right? Um, it kind of like confounds that by juxtaposing it with something that is supposedly its opposite. But in so doing, it kind of also like flattens the very binary itself. It's a kind of deconstructive act, and it creates a different relation between the two objects. Yeah, I like that because, you know, psychologically even, um, we are programmed, in a sense, to have very different reactions to those two categories of images, right? Nature is Mm. supposed to, especially really beautiful depictions of nature, is supposed to evoke in us, like, awe, right? And then pictures of emotive human faces is supposed to have much more, I don't know if you say complex, but more uh, detailed and concrete emotional reactions, right? Like right. pity and love and empathy hmm. and uh, care and, you know, stuff like that, right? 
I'm probably much more yeah. involved than just awe, which seems almost like a blanket um, form of like abstract feeling, right? It's not very concrete. Yeah. And this, the film in juxtaposing those is kind of breaking down that boundary by saying, I'm going to put these things right next to each other and these like sharp cuts in between them so that you almost can't change your emotional reaction that fast, right? So yeah. it has to end up blending them together. So you start having like awe with the human faces and then care and empathy and love with the visions of nature, all kind of blending and, and blending those emotions into one thing, whatever that you know amalgamation might be. So the film mm. doesn't just tell you that, right? It actually like almost makes you experience that in watching it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and I do want to say that that there that that could lead to a type of um, like nothingness or a type of nihilism, where then it's like, okay, so then you're left with what? Just like deconstruction, and I don't think that's the point. And I think there are a couple reasons why. Um, one, I think they're held into a productive tension to kind of just challenge and to stimulate that thought so that you don't just like live in your presuppositions. But I also think, and I think I told you this in a private conversation, that on the most recent watch, I actually felt a real tenderness that I hadn't seen previously in my other viewings. And I really tapped into a humanism. And even though I would say I would classify the film as being post-humanist in the sense, not that it's anti-human or it's definitely not transhuman, but it's post-human in the sense that it challenges what the very notion of the human itself is. Like, how do we understand what this is? But what I mean is, is that it's 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 a humanist film in the sense that it's vitalist. It's It loves life. It's affirmative. And I think I see this most potently in one of the opening scenes where there's a little boy who wants to play with his dad, right? And... Oh, the, the, kid, the kid that goes from crying to smiling really quick? Yes. That's such a beautiful and shot, dude. <laughs> it's so beautiful. And it puts a smile on my face every time. He wants to play, and you can tell the dad is teasing him. Like, no, I won't do it again. I won't do it again. And he's like, oh, come on. And then he says, okay. And as soon as he says, okay, this joy comes over this kid's face. And then he spins him around, and they do their play thing. And the kid is just so filled with life and love and connection. And I think that's... And I don't just mean connection in kind of like the the sentimental sense, but I mean it in the kind of real proper philosophical sense, that there is a sense in which that assemblage, that entity is connecting with this other entity and they are creating and stimulating the positive passions or the positive affects in a very sort of Spinozist sense. And I I think because I tapped into that on this watch, maybe even even though I've always loved that scene, for some reason, it just hit me really hard. Maybe it's because of fucking pandemic and lockdown and whatever else, you know. I'm, maybe I'm being a little bit more emotional. But I felt that that tenderness actually maintains through, even though it's not always there, there's always a desire to actually create a better world still. And it's not just a better world in an abstract sense, but it's a better world for that kid, right? It's a better world for him. And it's a better world for the narrator. And it's a better world for the dad. And it's a better world for the other participants in the film. And they themselves want to participate in the creation of a better world. And um, I don't know. It just it just really struck me really hard that there is a kind of very subtle normativity of this ethic that impels the film forward throughout even all of these abstractions of juxtaposing and challenging human faces with nature and robots and all this other shit. So. Yeah, I mean, that just made it be me because I care about the normative aspect of these things, but I think that's very much on the surface. Like, that's what's motivating the whole thing ultimately, right? Um, right. The most affecting, the shots that that have left me, uh, sort of stuck with me the most since I watched it, are the 
the little kid crying and smiling, which is an amazing mm-hmm. shot. My favorite shot of the whole <laughs> film by far. And then the shot later in the film, I don't even remember the context of it, but the uh, African-American uh, man and his daughter on like the doorstep oh, or yeah. whatever it was. Um, and yeah, it's the shots of human faces and regular people. And then they're shot in such a way that it just speaks to this incredible beauty. Um, and it's not like a, uh, a like a romanticist um, style of it where it's sort of objectifying these things, I don't think, um, which is, I think it makes it even better. You know what I love about the second shot that you were talking about? One of the things that's a very slight kind of inversion is that it's a daughter, it's a father with a daughter rather than like a mother with a daughter or a mother with a son. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that the film is exploring is what would life be like if we actually had time, you know, because it's exploring the, the potential benefits of a universal basic income, for example, which is one of the demands that they issue in the book. And what would life be like? Would you be able to spend time as a, like a, if you're a father who's typically, I mean, even though the gender breakdown doesn't work in the same way that it did maybe in like the 1950s in the West, you still get a lot of men who are either absent from the home or they're not as, they're not viewed as care workers as much, or they're not viewed as care participants, let's say, as much as women still are. And so I think it's really lovely to say like, what would life be like in the future if this the ideas from this book were actually implemented. Like, what would this alternative vision of the future be? Maybe it would be that, hey, guess what? If you're a father, you can go to the playground with your daughter and you can have that kind of relationship. And guess what? You're a man and she's a little girl who is going to kind of grow up into a different gender composition than how you identify and how you have been composed. But guess what? You can relate to each other under these new situations and under this new paradigm in a different way. And I think that it's very subtle and it isn't it isn't beating you over the head, but it's there in in, in that little scene. And that's one of the things I love about that scene. Yeah, that's pushing all my buttons, dude, because I think, you know, the most important thing when it comes to a lot of these um political and social ideas that we're talking about that are revolutionary, radical, whatever, um, why we think they're important is, to me, that that's the whole game. I mean, you can talk about the UBI, universal basic income, and, and post-work society and all this stuff. And if the ultimate idea is because you want to make capitalism run more efficiently, if, if UBI is about sort of plugging the holes in capitalism so that um, it, can, it can sort of be a machine as a machine that be oiled up and run better, then we're not going to make a better world that way, right? We may even make a worse yeah. world, ultimately. Um, but if the purpose yeah. is because we want to not serve human interests even better, but more properly and appropriately relate to one another, right? Um, if that's the idea and to live better lives as a whole, um, then we've actually got something there. And those mm. kinds of shots, and, and really I think that the ultimate orientation of of inventing the future toward making very explicit that it's about making a better world and having better lives, having better relationships with one another and being more creative um, as those being the sort of orientation for why um, these sort of technical ideas matter um, is, is so incredibly important because that's, that's the thing that most people don't talk about, right? We talk about like a, a policy idea, like we, UBI is an Andrew Yang thing, right? But mm. what's his, what's his orientation? Um, and I'm not like just trying to shit on Yang, right? Obviously, it's better that he supports the UBI than people who don't give a shit about helping anybody who's poor. Um, but his orientation is about making capitalism run more efficiently, right? Mm. Um, and there's, that's not going to make a better world. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think one of the things that we really wanted to do was not just talk about the ideas. That's what they do in the book, right? Which is great. It's it's a nonfiction book, and it is um, an analytical, political. It's got elements of a kind of being a manifesto. Um, but it's also uh, a polemic, and then at the same time, it's got uh, kind of like some elements of like real good, rigorous academic uh, analysis in there as well, right? And one of the things we wanted to do was we wanted to take that, and we wanted to say, well, what would also happen if you kind of like, like literally just embodied those ideas, right? Like rather than just talking about, you know, the information that we can get from various UBI experiments that have been run around the world or what do we think could happen or let's just talk about in the abstract um, how have other theorists explained the benefits of a universal basic income or something along those lines rather than doing that what if we simultaneously uh, yeah we can do that and we can talk about those things we can speak the words but simultaneously at the same time we can also just express and show humans loving each other holding their hands, walking through the street, taking time, being with each other, sitting in a park, and at the same time, overlay that and cross-cut that and juxtapose that with these other images that will perpetually make you think that this isn't just a, a simple, linear, systematic program that is being presented here, but that this is kind of a tool and an experiment for thinking the future itself. It's doing so by expressing the future, by embodying the future, by manifesting the future, by playing with the idea of what time in the future and what leisure time would be and what human connection is and what human relations are and all of those things and kind of kind of just throwing it out there and presenting it and and letting that kind of letting the the, the viewer saturate themselves in all of that kind of um, chaotic cosmotic uh, creation. You could almost say it itself is attempting to invent the future. I mean, I think that's it, 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 it almost sounds too cheesy and on the nose, but that's literally what it that, that's one of the things we talked about a lot. Yeah, you know? I mean, it's, it's cheesy yeah. in, in presentation uh, through, you know, words, but in actual action, it, it makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, but that's that's literally the idea is, is what what Isaiah said this a couple of times. What would a film look like that came from the future? Right. We talked about this with Macon um, a couple episodes back, right? The kind of like problem of of always being foreclosed within the hegemonic logic of capital. Like is pop music always like, is it destined to just reproduce the logic or is there something that can escape? And I think this is where Isaiah's speculative, metaphysical, philosophical outlook really comes in. Because the idea is that that inventing the future in many ways is is intentionally trying to be a film from the future. It's trying to be like post post-cinematic or futurally cinematic or kind of like extra cinematic in a sense that this is what we understand as being cinema this is what we understand as being the cinematic language this is what we understand as being thought this is what we understand as being a political manifesto and what if we kind of like try to do all of that but from the future in a way that exists outside the bounds of what we typically understand of how we structure thought language cinema art politics activism etc 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 and that's the idea. Is it's it's attempting as much as possible, not just to invent the future, but to literally kind of speak from the future, and then in so doing, maybe invent at least some kind of affect of the future. That would be my kind of more Deleuzian approach to it. I think we just got the title for this episode, dude. Affecting the future. Affect of the future. Fuck. Affecting the future. 
<laughs> affecting the future. I'm writing this down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because it's not a clear sense, right? Because as soon as you have a clear sense or let's say a clear idea of something, like let's say tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm going to check my email and I'm going to go get uh, a cup of coffee from the cafe next door and then I'm going to come back home and I'm going to do work. I'm I'm talking about the quote-unquote future, but is it really novel? Is it really the future? Or is it just more of a type of reproduction of habits, of past habits. And this is a very Deleuzean take on it, but Deleuze has what he calls the three syntheses of time. And the second synthesis of time is habit. And it is the synthesis of what I was just talking about. It's kind of like that reproduction of identities, right? The things that we're familiar with, um, the images that we have already created, that we reproduce, they're pre-constituted, and we live within them, and we reproduce them as we proliferate them, right? But the third synthesis of time for Deleuze is what he calls the eternal return of difference. And we could speak of it as like the guarantee of death, the guarantee of the death of identity, the return of differentiation. That is the eternal reproduction, no, sorry, not reproduction, the eternal perpetuation of the scrambling of all identities. And that's kind of what I think when I say tomorrow I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, completely forecloses. It doesn't allow for that return of difference to actually perpetuate. It doesn't allow for it to, to vibe, let's say, or to pulsate. Um, but rather it always forecloses all of that because it's kind of just reproducing the habits of the past or of the present. And, um, and when you do that, you, you don't really have a future in the novel, absolute, speculative sense. And so I think that that the book Inventing the Future is really trying to get outside of that, and definitely this film, we're definitely trying to think beyond that, through that 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 that, that, that restriction, that uh, the restriction of habit, the restriction of a certain notion of temporality that is linear, that is, uh, I think, operates according to like a pure logic of what Deleuze calls extensional quantity, um, which is um, which is something that that really fits quite well, actually, within the logic of capitalism. I actually think it essentially defines the logic of capitalism, actually. But to really think beyond those bounds, to think outside of that, excessively of that, would essentially be to think anti-capitalistically or post-capitalistically, because it would be something that is not structured by the restrictions and the habits of the current hegemon. And so the film is really trying to do that. Now, is it going to do that perfectly? Like, is this going to be simply a film from the future? No, because we're still using human language. We're still using cameras. We're still using human bodies that are going to, in some ways, reproduce those habits. But the point is, to what degree and to what extent and according to what magnitude can we intensify those dissonances that are beyond, that speak to us from the future, that speak to us excessively. And and when I say future here, I don't just mean in the linear sense, because we're probably thinking of a timeline, right? And most of us, if we're speaking English, we're thinking of that which comes from the right-hand side and like interrupts back into the left-hand side. No, no, no. Let's forget that spatial metaphor altogether. And let's just simply think about that which is frazzling at the margins, that which is like reverberating beyond the margins of the structures that are there. And then let's call that the future, right? Let's get out of the kind of linear thinking whatsoever and that spatial metaphor that encloses us within a particular way of thinking. And let's just think about that which is just completely in excess of. And that's what I mean by thinking from the future. It's thinking from that excess. Yeah, to put a more naive and simplified gloss on what I think you're getting at, 
um, there's something about art that what differentiates and distinguishes art from, I don't know, like regular ready-to-hand objects or whatever is it's not, it doesn't have a stake in what it is, right? And so art in some sense has to be open to being different than what it is in some sense and into the sort of stability of identity. Um, and maybe everything's that way, you know, Deleuze and whatever uh, jargon mm. follows from that. But um, yeah. art is definitely not going to be. And so the information vehicle style of film is very much concerned with its identity, right? It has to be a certain kind of thing. Um, otherwise, you haven't really gotten it, quote unquote, right? Um, and this mm. film's not that, right? At the very least. It's, mm. it's open to uh, differentiation um, when it comes to uh, its own nature. And that opens up a world of possibilities, right? And you can you can do that kind of thing poorly, right? It doesn't mean that you can throw mm. shit against the wall and all of a sudden it's art, right? Um, mm. But uh, it's going to be open to um, a huge multivarious, uh, you know, system of interpretations. A machine for interpretations, to use Umberto Eco's phrase, right? And mm. there's something really important about that aspect of art. doesn't mean anything goes, right? It's much more complex than that. Yeah, and I th- it doesn't mean anything goes, and that's why there are still formal conditions within which the cinematic language still operates, even if it is very experimental and avant-garde. Mm-hmm. It's like small nudges beyond it, you know? Um, but you're still formally conditioned by a certain type of set of resources or tools that you have to operate according to or alongside or from. And that's also, I think, an intentional thing, which is why Isaiah really uses like Lumiere and why he's kind of calling back to Eisenstein. And I think even like a little bit of 2001 is in there, especially at the end, right? Like 2001 Space Odyssey stuff, mm-hmm. like that's in there. Um, I think you could you can see, so there's Kubrick. I think you even get like some Spielberg in there when you really pay attention to some of this, you know? Um, so I think that, that he's not like shitting on art. He's not saying that there is no respect to the cinematic tradition. It's just that in what way do we orient ourselves to that tradition and then within that tradition moving forward? You know what would be really fun to do? Hmm. To do like a director's slash producer's cut or a, <laughs> a, a commentary. Oh, yeah. That would be kind of fun, huh? N- not like where we like just a, sit sit yeah. down and bullshit? Yeah, not to explain the film, right? That's obviously not the point. But just to yeah. like document a reaction to the film. That's actually a really fun idea. I would personally yeah. get a lot out of that. So I'm going to schedule a Zoom meeting. <laughs> I mean, one of the things we are hoping to do is we are hoping to organize a bunch of events. And, you know, we're doing a soft launch for this. Originally, the film, we were hoping that it would premiere at like the Berlin Film Festival. The programmers there really wanted it. And then we have a bunch of other festivals in mind. And, and then, of course, the pandemic hits and all the festivals are either postponed or closed. And so we kind of scrambled to to shift our very own thinking about how we were going to roll this film out initially it'll still play the festival circuit and it'll still kind of do other things and it'll play in theaters and things like that if theaters ever open back up again but what we really want to do is we want to kind of like slowly build this through just a like a set of networks of events where people can talk about it online that's why we've the film is released online, so it's free on YouTube. You can, people can go check that out. Um, it, you can just Google or YouTube Inventing the Future, the film. And then it, the file itself has been released, which is something that no, no filmmaker ever does. And it is funny because it's literally, he's just like giving people this film. And one of the things we were just talking about the other day, he's like, how cool would it be if people actually take like screen caps or they take like little segments of it and they start remixing 
a film that is already kind of thought to be just very montage and kind of a remix itself, right? Hmm. And I'm like, yeah, that'd be fucking awesome, right? That people can actually have access to the original file itself and start playing with it and doing what they want with it. And because the film was funded by the Canadian government and then by some crowdfunding, it's always been a public project. And so now the entire file has been released into the public. And so rather than do the thing like Quentin Tarantino does when a skip a script gets released and he like threatens that he'll never make the film or something like that, this is literally opposite. It's like, no, you have it, have everything. Take it all. Because that doesn't actually fundamentally threaten our interests. I like that a lot. Um, I think we can end there and uh, use that as the, the document for an introduction to this film. It's been great for me, I think, especially just to, to talk about the um, like elocutionary aspect of the film, like what this film actually is doing as like a um, like a cinematic act. Um, mm. I just want to watch the film with you, dude. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah, that's I, I really do. I will be hosting like so stay tuned, especially for people listening to, but I will be hosting things like this, you know, where we'll do like a screening online and then we'll talk about it afterwards or whatever. But um, yeah, really cool. I'd yeah, it'd be cool. And you know what I'm really curious about? Because I have talked with Isaiah, you know, thousands of times over the years. But what I haven't done is I haven't sat down with him and, like, just in the moment when something hits me, spoken about it with him, you know? Or, like, just to even say, like, whenever I see that little boy at the very beginning that goes from crying to smiling, just to, like let my smile shine and be like, I just always fucking smile at that part. I love that part so much. Just to say that, just to have that kind of moment with him. And I'd be very curious, like, what affects him when he's watching this film? And I have a very kind of, like, Deleuzian take on certain things. Um, whereas he has maybe a little bit more of kind of like a mathematical, Baduian, maybe more of a kind of like, uh, uh, I don't even know what I, what it would be, but like a maybe a little bit more of a Hegelian take on things. And um, so it would be really interesting to say, like, why this hits me in a particular way, why it hits him in a particular way. I love that idea of the producer-director commentary because I think it would be really fun for us to just, like – because it would be a, a nice kind of productive dialogue between the two of us as well, you know? Yeah, it in itself would be a, a discussion worth having rather mm-hmm. than just purely a reaction to a film. Yeah, totally. Totally, totally. That's cool. Well, I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad that we were able to do this because – it's hard. Like when you said you loved the film at the beginning, it's always hard for me because I just don't know what I believe about anything <laughs> that I produce, you know? Or anything like, in general. Or just anything in general. Um, but I had a friend hit me up. Jared from Wisecrack sent me a message and he's like, bro, he's like, you released a film and a book all within the span of a year. And I was like, fuck, I guess I did, didn't I? Yeah, dude. And I was like, <laughs> I was like that. He's like, you should be so proud. And, and I don't mean this in like a bad way. I was like, but I'm not like I haven't been, <laughs> you know, and I told him, I said, it's just hard, I guess, to stop and take stock. And I think part of it is because I have to keep fucking moving so fast with other projects and I've got all these things. And, um, but I, one of the things I really want to do is I actually do want to kind of like pause over the coming months here and just take stock of four years culminating in this film and then of course the book is great too but but like just so much thought and time and expectation and hopes and things like that have culminated in this film and um i haven't been able to really talk about it in depth with anybody like isaiah and i talk all the time but i haven't really been able to talk about the film and 
I kind of want to talk about the film. I want to enjoy it more, you know? And I feel like I haven't been able to... Like, the night that we released it, I, I think I told you maybe, but, like, I cried when it released because I took a moment and I was like, fuck, this four years, it's amazing. Um, but, like, to really just sit in the release of this film and engage in its reception is something that I really... I wanted when we first started making the film, and I think that I really crave now, now that the film is out, too. So I really look forward to, like, the rest of this year being able to continue to talk about it and then even in the coming years be able to talk about it um in all kinds of areas for them so I, I, yeah i'm stoked for that so i think it's, i'm stoked that you wanted to talk about it on the podcast that's great it makes me happy yeah it was great i think i got a lot out of um this experience and uh, i'm looking forward to going back and i'm looking at it again with fresh eyes having thought about all these things i think um especially for someone who's not as familiar with the you know avant-garde um sort of arena of filmmaking uh, talking a bit about this stuff first, I think it's going to give a huge, um, be very beneficial towards the experience of the film. So I know earlier I said uh, to watch the film first, then listen to this, but you could do it in any order. Just do whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> but if they stopped before and they got to this point in the podcast, it's too late now. They've, they've you, already You should have known not to trust me, right? I don't know what I'm talking <laughs> about. You know it's going to be great, too? The next time I'm in L.A., once they allow us to travel again, maybe you and I can just have some beers and sit down and watch it. That would be kind of fun. That would be great, dude. That's I know. We'll have... Let's do it. Sweet, man. Well, let's go ahead and wrap that up there, yeah? Yeah, yeah. All right, sweet. So now we got to move on to the final segment of the episode. This is the Sticky Leaves. This is where one of us gets to talk about something that is giving us meaning in a world that is potentially meaningless. And obviously, my film is giving you so much meaning, Troy. But <laughs> outside... Most the most meaning. meaning. Outside of the cup that overfloweth with inventing the future, <laughs> what is giving you meaning in this bleak time of the pandemic? So, yeah, it's the pandemic, right? So you get nothing to do but, like, sit around and binge watch TVs and stuff. Um, <laughs> although I haven't really been doing that. Kind of been doing the exact same media consumption as normal just mm. because work is so much. There's so much more work to do given that every conversation you would have during the day is now an email, which takes five times as long. Yeah. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm one of those people who, like, always pads their emails with way too much information than is necessary. Um, oh, totally. I just, I, I just can't. I just can't cut stuff like this is necessary information person has to have it yep uh let alone the fact that students are like freaking out and don't know what to do which is very yeah understandable. yeah normally normally you get like you know 10 15 minutes maybe of questions after class where students are walking with you sometimes we'll get into a discussion but now it's like every day i get like a flood of emails or questions mm -hmm. or whatever and it's not just from them it's also from the admin and from other lecturers or from other tutors or just from like the the vice chancellor of the university constantly updating us giving it's too much man it is too much it's way too much and i can't even imagine what it, it must be like for students who are so i'm getting you know dozens and dozens of students emails right but then it's mostly the same answers over and over again right so i can kind of just sort of you know, memorize what I'm going to say. And it just kind of, I don't have to think about things very hard. Right? There's a lot of cognitive labor going into those responses. But for the students, they're getting it from maybe four or five different sources, plus administration, plus whatever that's happening with their families, right? That's just, it, I don't know how the students are, are making it, right? It's just cognitive overload. 
with new stuff. I, I, I do not envy my students at all. And I feel really bad for them that this is the how they're ending their semester. But anyway, my sticky leaves for this week is I'll keep this short here since we're going kind of long. I just finished watching this week um, the HBO show Succession. So I think this is a brilliant series. Um, I know a lot of people that I talk to um, love it because it's extremely melodramatic, right? Um, and a lot of people hated it because they thought the characters were all uh, despicable. And so they couldn't, they didn't have anybody to root for. Right? I think even Pete Buttigieg was asked if he watched Succession. He said he tried, but he thought everyone was kind of despicable and he had no one to root for. So he stopped watching it. Um, and I totally get that. The first three episodes of the series, I was like, I'm not enjoying this at all. Like it's, it's, uh, it's well made. Um, the creator of the show, Jesse Armstrong, is someone who I have immense respect for. He's the guy who did uh, Peep Show. You watched Peep Show, right? Oh, yeah, I know Peep Show. Yeah, with uh, Mitchell and Webb, and which is, I think, one of the most brilliant comedies uh, <laughs> ever made. I absolutely yeah. adore that series. And so I was going to watch this no matter what, given that Jesse Armstrong's doing it, and I think he's brilliant. Um, and he also worked with like Armando Iannucci on, uh, uh, what's the UK version of Veep? I forget what it's called. Oh, in I know loop, what you're talking about. In the Loop, right? Is in the that, Loop. Yeah. yeah. Is, that, is that the one you're thinking? The one that had um, fucking Doctor Who in it? Yeah, yeah. Peter, uh, what's his name? <laughs> God. Yeah, fuck. I know what you're talking Capaldi, about. Capaldi. Yes. Peter Capaldi. There we go. Yeah, that's the one. Um, yeah, it was wonderful. So I was going to watch this no matter what. And those first three episodes are really hard. Um, I know that he, that Armstrong himself, I've read interviews, has said that you should go back and watch those first three episodes. And you might get a different appreciation of them because they just drop you into the tone of the of the series mm. immediately without sort of like nudging you in. And so it's okay. meant to be a bit alienating. Um, but after those first three episodes, I have loved every single second of this series. And it's not because it's so overly dramatic. Um, there's a sort of uh, there's a sort of like um, tone to a lot of sort of political um dramas which is rich people behaving badly and then just upping the stakes because they have so much money they can just do whatever they want and that's incredibly entertaining mm. to watch like i think billions is kind of in that in that mode um and I, I i can't stand that whole um like mode of of television series i just i kind of hate that and i thought succession was going down that route i probably would have given up on it honestly if, if it wasn't jesse armstrong being the guy who was doing this and mm. I've, I came to realize through watching, it's been two seasons that we, that we finished here. Um, it's not at all what it is. This series is, and there's a reason why Adam McKay, I think, is involved in this. It's exposing the moral rot at the heart of the elite class in America. The whole thing is a, it's a dark comedy, really, before it's even a drama. And it's extremely funny, first of all. Um, it takes a minute to get used to the humor and to understand it because it's just so off-putting at first. But I think it's just hilariously, uproariously funny um, throughout hmm. the entire uh, series with some of the greatest barbs thrown out um, that you can ever imagine. But then also, I think that it, unlike you know a lot of uh, dramas that are about rich people having, behaving badly, it really has this incredible moral center to it because the point of it is to be like, an expose on moral psychology of elites, why people are the way that they are. You see them behaving mm. badly and you, you know, disparage them in your mind, right? And you hate them, which you're right to do because they're bad. And then you start to understand why they're that way. There's some background on 
the family histories and everything like that, right? But even that would be, I think, not all that much of an achievement because we've had lots of why bad people are bad um, narratives, right? Right. It goes beyond that and gets to the issue of why why these people are the way that they are and then why that's so bad for them even. Why even Mm. they can't get the things that they ultimately want. Why they can't really flourish. Why they can't really be great ultimately. Mm. It really shows... That alienation the, it's alienation but even more than that i think it's it's weakness it shows mm. how every single person is bad because they're weak ultimately uh, and not weak in the sense of like physically weak or mentally weak or something like that right like some sense of we could all just be uber mensch then we'd all be heroes or whatever yeah uh, but it's ultimately about vulnerability and people sort of doing everything they possibly can to stave off their vulnerability and their relationships with one another, to not really have relationships. The real point that I get out of the series is that pe- these people don't even have relationships at all. There aren't any. They even sort of laugh off the idea. Every time a deep conversation starts to actually happen in the series, because it organically happens because they're human beings, right? They start mm-hmm. to make jokes because they can't be vulnerable. And I think that, I don't think I've ever seen moral psychology better depicted in a piece of media than this and it's maybe just because this is something i'm thinking about a lot now and so it's right in the forefront for me but i've heard i've listened to some interviews and read some interviews with jesse armstrong and this seems to be clearly his intent behind the series so i don't want to say too much about it because i think um even though this sort of uh this sort of like um the moral psychology aspect of it, I think, is very much on the surface. You can enjoy it without even thinking about that, probably, because the barbs are so good and the drama is is very effect is very entertaining. That's certainly an aspect of it, right? Um, but I'd encourage anybody out there who maybe gave up on it early or who sees it as part of this deluge of rich people behaving badly drama um, and, and sort of has a sort of distaste for that, which I certainly understand and agree with, to go back and give Succession another try. Um, and at least get through the first half of the first season. Because I think once that aspect of it comes out, it's incredibly deep um, while okay. also being incredibly funny. And I think that there's, there's, that's a really hard marriage to make work. How many seasons are there? Two. See, I feel like there was a moment when everyone was talking about this and I kind of just turned it off because I think I just assumed it was rich people being badly or behaving badly. Mm-hmm. And... Um, not that I like I can enjoy those kinds of shows, but I think I just it didn't like it, like whatever it was, it didn't attract me. It didn't grab me, you know. Um, but if it is, as you say, this is actually perfect because I just finished Ozark and I've felt a void in my uh, in my quarantined life. So I was like flipping through Netflix trying to figure out what was going to be next. So is this on Netflix or is it like Amazon or something? Uh, it's HBO. Okay. Okay. But yeah, you, know, you can find it. You're in yeah. Australia. <laughs> the law. I have my you. ways. I have my <laughs> ways. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, that's cool. Did you watch Ozark? No, but I'm I'm hoping to at some point. It's a Netflix thing, so we'll binge it at some point in the future. Okay. Yeah, I so, was thinking because when I was it like, first came out, I know Ozark had like mixed reviews, but it seems like lately, the last couple seasons, people really love it. Is that the case? Um. I don't remember the first season that well. I actually, I I completely forgot that I didn't even watch the second season, but the third season just came out and everyone was talking about it. 
But then I watched the recap at the beginning of the second season. I was like, fuck, I don't remember any of this, but it was a really nice recap. And then I was like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And so all I remember from the first season was that it kind of crescendoed towards the end, and it held my attention. I really like Jason Bateman and Laura Linney as well. But there are a couple other actors that are these like kind of younger actors that I think were terrific, that were really great, and they really kind of come into their own towards the end of the first season and then really into the second season. But when I watched the recap, it reminded me that just kind of the positive experience I had of the first season. But that's really all I can say about it because I don't really remember the experience because it was a while ago and I just didn't watch the second season until now. And then I just binged both the second and third season over the past couple weeks. So, and I think it's fucking excellent. But there's just something interesting in it, you know, because I can't escape the ghost of my father uh, judging me all the time. So I um, am watching fucking Ozark thinking like, what would someone like my dad or like someone that's really conservative think about how these bad people are the heroes, you know, they're the anti-heroes. And that there is something so interesting about presenting these complex human beings who are thrown into maybe impossible situations and situations that they themselves are complicit in, that they have made stupid choices or they've made um, choices that were necessary for survival or they made greedy choices or selfish choices or sometimes they did make a really kind of like a lovely choice. And, and so you kind of just get thrown into these complex moral quagmires and uh it's really fascinating i kind of tweeted out you know like breaking bad could walk so that ozark could run and i I don't really that does it gets kind of like a disservice to breaking bad because i don't think breaking bad was walking but my point is is that it, it was like the first show that i really got into that had a guy that was a teacher who was a kind of upstanding citizen who then turns and he breaks bad and it's kind of like what happens to the person who lives in your suburban street um, when you when you get behind the facade and you find out who they really are? And as somebody who grew up in the suburbs, when we would hear stories about, you know, this really rich family whose father then gets arrested because he's actually not in real estate, but he's one of the biggest cocaine traffickers in California, which is a true story, which happened to us, then you start to like, like for me, I'm like, fuck, who are these people, right? And I find it so fascinating that, people are not what they're presenting as their role that they're playing in society you know chemistry teacher or accountant in the case of ozark or you know um politician or whatever but that there's layers and there's stuff back there and getting into that stuff and getting into that stuff without coming at it from like a dogmatic judgmental position is so interesting for me so i i feel like succession is almost like that but maybe even more dirty yeah i mean i think breaking bad is the um, the ultimate TV show about morality. It's almost too much so because it's not only mm. about morality, but it's even about like karma, um, which, you know, mm. so it has like a teleological aspect to it, which is great, I think, for film and for um, narrative, but it's not uh, accurate. <laughs> but um, mm. but yeah, I think in Vince Gilligan even talked about this, that he thinks that the entire series was about, uh, it's, it's, it's like a moral, it's a moral drama ultimately. And the revealing mm. of, of someone's, um, you know, uh, like inner uh, moral self um, being revealed through circumstances. And uh, that's what compelled me so much about Breaking Bad and about its sequel, Better Carl Saul, which is also, I think, incredible. Um, and Succession's a very different take on it, right? But I think it's getting into similar issues. And I don't think it's any surprise that all these dramas, um, the really great dramas of our time, I think, are really ultimately about these deep-seated moral issues 
and how those and how people are shaped by society and by capitalism um and even the age-old things like suffering and death and sickness mm. uh it's it's coming back to the fore because i don't think you can look at contemporary society and say there's not a moral dimension to it maybe in the 90s morality was you know old hat and no one cared about it anymore but i think today it's at the forefront of everything hmm yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I meant when I was talking about my dad is that I always have that moral compass. And so when I'm watching it, I can almost hear my dad's voice saying, oh, but this this show is advocating for an immoral position. And I would and I kind of watch this and I say, no, it's not. I think it's actually doing the opposite. I mm-hmm. think that this is almost like rather than it being a representation of an idea that it's trying to communicate, it's actually just expressing a certain social unconscious and that expression isn't a moral like valorization but is actually much more of like a problematic exploration of the human condition that itself is dirty and convoluted and um that runs up into these kind of moral contradictions and that's what i think is so interesting about these shows because i think that they fundamentally jar in the minds of the dogmatic position and that's kind of what really excites me and that's why i think i felt like a little bit of a lack after i watched ozark which gets me excited now to watch succession because i i want to be in that space a lot of times you know it's i don't know there's actually something like really in a weird way it's kind of comforting because i can see it playing out like uh maybe it's that cathartic that like ancient greek cathartic theory of tragedy because it's playing out there you know and there's almost like a almost like a logic of confession even we could say because it's being externalized and so it's no longer just purely in me that I don't have to just deal alone with my demons but it's there and I can see it and it helps me kind of manage them a little bit through exploring them does that does you think so oh I, I absolutely I absolutely think succession is a great tragedy first of all and then second of all I love this idea of confession as being kind of a formal aspect of a narrative mm. um that's exactly I think what it is I haven't thought about that but that's perfect and mm. uh um, and may not, may not even be intentional confession, but it's sort of confession in the sense of the sort of exposing of what's underneath, right? Of what's been hidden. Yeah. Um, which is great. And, it, and also in the sense in which confession is purifying um, and freeing. That's part of it too, I think. It's all, all those mm. things are revolving around there. And so it's, it's a common thing today for good reason. Um, and, and I love the idea that you're talking about the, that there's not, there's not only one way that, that a narrative can be about morality, right? There's like this kind of Protestant Christian notion that, the only way art can be um, sort of morally valuable is if it's quote unquote to the glory of God, like the sense in oh. which Bach like wrote fugues to the glory of God or whatever. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Which is, it's, it's such a limited and narrow way of conceiving art. Right. There's so many different ways that you can make um, so, or create something mm-hmm. that's sort of of ultimate intrinsic value. And even to be uh, about something that's uh, of moral value or about morality and, and as a specific sort of theme. And you can do it in many ways. Um, one way is to like be Mr. Rogers, but that's only one way of doing it, right? Um, there's many mm-hmm. other ways. And uh, I think there's, there's a really important sense in which because morality is so full of conventional platitudes and sort of conservative traditions that are not really sort of thought about very much or examined very well, Sort of kind of pipe through moralities that way we need um series and movies and books to be about morality without having that pretty gloss on it and now you just you finished reading um 
some Flannery O'Connor short stories. And I think, you mm. know, the Catholic tradition for some reason seems to have a much better grasp on this issue than the Protestant mm. tradition, at least in America does. Um, about really, she's, Flannery O'Connor is writing entirely about morality, but in this really dark uh, vein and, and um, perspective. But that's super important, I think, for understanding sort of the the parts about um, moral life and how moral life is situated within an unjust and unfair society that we have to be thinking about because that's those are the main issues um, that we have to deal with every day, hmm. both individually yeah. and at the political level. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, cool, man. All right, I'm going to check out some succession then. All right, so should we leave this here? Yeah, man, let's go ahead and wrap things up. All right, this has been a long one, but I think it's appropriate given the weighty themes that we're dealing with here. Yeah, so thank you guys so much for tuning in. You know where to find us, Twitter, Instagram, owls underscore at underscore dawn for both of them. You can email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. Patreon to support us. And what else, man? What am I forgetting? Oh, you know, all over the internet. We're everywhere. Ubiquitous. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay, cool. Well, I think that's pretty much everything we got to say, unless there's anything else you want to say before we get going. Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Your grandmother is the revolutionary subject. <laughs> oh, wait, no, I mean, Dostadani Americanski. Yeah!